Today I'm gonna to take my best swing at answering a question that is ultimately unanswerable. Over the course of human history, for as far back as time as one could look, there have been countless intellectuals who have attempted to answer this question, the vast majority of whom are far smarter and more educated than I could ever hope to be. And they have all failed to answer this question because the question is truly unanswerable. It might even be true to say that today's question in of itself is invalidated by the fact that it has no answer. If I asked you to tell me the color of jealousy, you would likely think that I'm crazy. That is a stupid question for a number of reasons, the most apparent of which is that it clearly does not have a valid answer. And therefore, seeking an answer is arguably just a waste of your time. However, today's question seems to have a certain magnetism to it. It's a question that we've asked for thousands of years, both consciously and subconsciously in some respects. The fact that this question has no answer may invalidate the question from one perspective, but from another perspective, we could establish the validity of this question by noting that for some reason, we can't seem to stop fucking asking it. The question that we're addressing today is simply, what is the meaning of life? The topic of meaning is one that I've intermittently toyed around with throughout my life. There were times, especially in my early 20s, when the idea of finding meaning absolutely consumed my thoughts. But there have also been long stretches in my life when I, for a lack of better words, just didn't give a shit about this topic. For much of my youth and teenage years, I was under the impression that I had already answered this question by the means of the Christian faith. And of course, it was, it was only in the absence of this belief system that I began to accept the fact that I don't have an answer to this question. As absurdism teaches us, this is an unimaginably difficult pill to swallow. It is truly absurd that we are smart enough to ask questions that we are not smart enough to ever answer. Now, my personality is very black and white. Truly, I am either utterly obsessed with something or wholly disinterested. And in a conversation with a friend several weeks ago, this topic of meaning came up, and I realized that I hadn't bothered to visit this topic in my own mind in several years. Without my knowledge, it was as though the question in of itself had just evaporated from my own consciousness. And that struck me as peculiar. How is it that this monstrous question of life's meaning, which once consumed my every waking moment of consciousness, remains unsolved, yet now totally unimportant to me? Why is it that I find myself no longer interested in the hunt for meaning? I had a sneaking suspicion that this state of disinterest in of itself is somehow connected to the question's answer. And trust me, I can hear the irony here. I'm implying that the problem with finding meaning may very well lie in the seeking of that meaning. This is the very concept that I'm going to try and unpack for you today. Now, I'd like to establish two critical axioms before we dive in, because I do believe that there are some self-evident truths that we can set up and hopefully agree upon. And even if we don't agree upon them, it'll be helpful for you to keep these things in mind so we can build a subsequent conversation on top of these two points that I'm going to make here. So the first would be that even if you consider yourself to be someone who has answered today's question, that you cannot merely share your answer with others, or at least not have any expectations that, that it's going to land with others. If you consider yourself someone who has found meaning, lucky you, whether by defining it explicitly through a religious doctrine or perhaps a more abstract worldview that provides a satisfactory answer to the question, you know, merely telling someone else the meaning that you have found does not mean that they are going to find your answer valid. Your answer to this question, should you have one, is not an answer that others are obligated to accept in any capacity, and they often don't. 
If Christians, for example, could merely share the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the subsequent meaning of his death with the world, then we would all have been Christians a very long time ago, because in reality, there are very few non-Christians in the West who have not heard the message of Christianity. The reality is that many millions of people have heard the message of Jesus Christ, but they consciously reject it. For them, it does not provide a valid answer to the question. And this is not exclusive to Christianity, of course. If you find yourself adhering to any one specific belief, that means that you have also rejected countless other opposing beliefs. These alternative beliefs, which you consciously dismiss, may provide tremendous meaning and value to someone else. Your conclusion and your findings do not invalidate someone else's conclusions and their findings. This is a deeply nuanced topic in this way. So while we can choose to pronounce our perceived meaning to the world, and oftentimes we do, we ultimately cannot expect that others will find it valid. That makes meaning, whatever it might be, very personal and subject to many different definitions by different individuals. Ultimately, this first axiom is my admission that I don't have the answer to this question. I do not know what the meaning of life is. And it's at this crucial principle that I ask you to meet me. You also don't have the answer to this question. And even if you believe that you do, the validity of your perceived meaning is unfortunately non-transferable. And the second axiom that I'd like to present is less of an axiom and more of a clarification about what it is that I believe about morality. We're gonna be exploring morality heavily in this episode. And at times, you may have to bear in mind that I have somewhat of a hybridized view of morality, which borrows from both reason and religion, two belief systems that are, you know, often in conflict to say the least. So if you don't agree with me there that religion and reason are married together in some way, um, you're going to have to have a suspension of belief. And I think that may be hard for a lot of people to pull off, that science and religion both have something valid to say about our morality. The scientific side of the aisle states that we ultimately create our morals and values by the means of reason. And religion, or the natural law argument, states that our morality is innate and built within the universe, and our job is simply to decode that fixed morality. So this would be something along the lines of understanding the nature of God himself, right? So I'd like to clarify early on my true position here, and that is that I personally adopt a hybridized approach to these philosophies. I do accept natural law to a certain degree. Portions of our morality do seem to be fixed in place. And I also believe that we can clearly amend portions of our morality with our reasoning and logic. This hybrid that I'm describing is kind of an unpopular one because I'm making the claim that both sides of the morality argument are correct in a certain sense. And as frustrating as that may be to some listeners, it's just where I am currently. And this is about as good of an articulation as I'm currently able to assemble. Now, throughout this podcast, you'll hear me make some strong arguments that morality is not fixed and that we can, in fact, amend the very concept of morality with logic or with reason. But there will also be times in this podcast where I'll entertain the idea of natural law or the concept that portions of our morality are, in fact, innate and fixed in place by nature or by God, as the founding fathers of the United States put it. And I know that borrowing from these Deeply contrasting philosophical structures can be a little bit confusing, but to me, it seems that, for a lack of a better phrase, science and religion are supposed to get married. There's some sort of essential union that I'm exploring in my own personal philosophy, and I've yet to fully understand what that might be, and I definitely don't know how to describe it. 
Ultimately, I believe that portions of our morality are in fact fixed, innate and natural. And I also believe that we can clearly amend our morality, at least to a certain degree. I think that reason and faith are in a lot less of a conflict than we typically make them out to be. And uh, that is a podcast for another day. So as we dive in, know that it is not my prerogative to attack your beliefs or strip you of them, whatever those may be at this point in time. Uh, Whether you're coming from a religious perspective or if you're coming from a science-based perspective, I would hope that what I have to say today um, will borrow a little bit from whatever it is that you believe in, and maybe we'll leave with a hybridized approach here. It just depends on which moment of the podcast you're listening to, because there's a lot of toggling that will happen in this episode. So just know that it is my goal today to make this concept as universally applicable as I possibly can. And now let's find out if I am able to do just that. Now, for those watching on YouTube, you'll notice that I'm in a slightly different place in my studio today. I'm sitting at a a small desk that I normally use for my other podcast, my drum podcast. And the reason is I kind of need this iPad right in front of me the entire time. I was going to use this iPad and and a little sketch app here to draw somewhat of a diagram as we move through this podcast. But I realized that the pen touching the glass, uh, my little Apple Pencil here, it made it a little bit too loud to record it that way. So the drawing in of itself is already done, and uh, if you're watching in video form, you're gonna see different slides that sort of move along as I take you through this system or this diagram. Now, if you're just listening on audio, don't worry, there is a Dropbox link or a link of some kind in the description of this podcast, and you can follow that, and you can get this completed diagram. Trust me, you will want that to follow along. This, This is a little abstract to have no visual aid Um, So that's going to be really helpful if you are listening to the audio version. But uh, yeah, YouTube might be a a good place to consume this particular podcast. So we're going to kick this off by laying out a continuum here. This continuum would be ultimately between evil and good. But I'm very aware that there's a conflict here when it comes to the reason versus religion debate. And that would be, you know, how do you define good and evil? Are they... You know, natural law would have a lot to say about that, that these are are sort of pre-existing states of the world. And, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know that I get to tell you if that's true, but we could also define good and evil very easily uh, through reason. And, and I don't really mind those definitions too much. So good and evil, as religion would describe them to us, you know, evil would be Satan, there you go, hell, chaos, and Good would ultimately be the character of God himself, but I don't think you need those the, the mysticism of those definitions to, to paint a picture of what good and evil might be. I think we can go a lot simpler with our definitions of good and evil. Um, so let's define them with reason first. Evil, we could say, would be anything that is counterproductive to your well-being. That could be emotional well-being, mental well-being. That is the wrong direction on a moral level, if it, if it is counterproductive uh, when it comes to the promotion of your mental health, your well-being, or your physical health, you know, you could put a, a number of things in those categories, and we could just say that that's the direction of bad shit. That's where evil would be if there is any, right? And of course, you could extend that all the way to egregious human behaviors. Now, good would be, in the reason side of the argument, I suppose something that that promotes well-being, if it is something that fosters mental health, physical health, any of those things, we we could say that that's good. These are relatively vague definitions, but I don't think there's a lot of conflict here. Now, there is something that I like about the the religious definitions of evil and good. Um, The religious definition would be of evil 
that anything that consciously increases the suffering of the innocent would be defined as evil. And really, that definition does a pretty good job of encompassing all types of evil shit. That would be rape. That would be abuse of uh, the elderly or a child. It would be any type of malevolence that you could find uh, would fall under that definition. Consciously increasing the suffering of the innocent. That is pretty goddamn evil. I don't really know another, I don't know of a better way to describe it. That's pretty evil. Now, in life, we would want to aim ourselves away from evil. Certainly we would. And that's a pretty solid definition. Don't consciously increase the suffering of innocent people. Now, that helps you aim yourself away from what evil is. But aiming away from something bad is not synonymous with aiming directly at something good. And I'll give you a good example here. If someone runs up to you, let's just say that you're in a parking lot, and someone runs up to you with a gun, and they point the gun at you, and they are trying to kill you, well, you can run away from them. That's evil, and you can turn your back to that, and you can sprint in virtually any direction, and you are, you are attempting to evade evil, and you are. You're running away from that thing. But who is to say that you are running towards something good? You could be running towards another evil. You could be running towards something that is, is neutral, I suppose, not towards safety necessarily. Safety would be the good in this analogy. And so aiming at good gets very complicated. I think one of the things that makes this continuum very tricky is that when we're talking about evil, it's not very difficult for us to agree on what evil might be. I could list a thousand evil acts and we would probably agree on all of them. Yes, that's bad. This is not, not a good thing in our life, whether it's anything from rape or murder or violence or just being an asshole. I mean, there's so many contexts that I could lay out for you, so many examples, um, and we would, we would agree on what's evil. But when it comes to what is good and how we aim ourselves at that, this is much harder to define because, to put it simply, what is good for me may not be good for you, and what is good for you may not be good for anybody else in the world. It is, it is highly subjective, and the definition of good appears to me to be very, very malleable. And if you accept this idea that what is good could be defined as something that promotes your well-being, well, the reality is that people's well-being and their suffering, it's different. It's different for every single person. Your version of well-being is not the same as mine, and this is the case with every individual in the world. So finding universal goods is a lot trickier than finding universal evils. Now, of course, I don't wanna discount some of the universal goods like being kind or being generous. These are things that, that kinda do universally apply, it, but it's when we get into the details that good becomes a lot more malleable and tougher to pin down. So the question here is, you know, we can run from evil, that's fine, but how do we aim ourselves at what is good? It seems to me that we would first have to define what good in of itself actually is. And that's not to say that I fully reject the concept of natural law, because I don't think if we ran the human experiment a hundred times over, we would come up with these drastically different versions of morality. I just don't think that's the case. There do seem to be common 
universal truths that we all share. And we have a very hard time straying from those fundamentals. I don't think there's a version of morality where if we ran this human experiment back, we're just killing each other all the time. There are some baselines here, and I don't know that that we're able to get too far away from those. Now, it is my view that good is more malleable than religion usually claims, but I don't intend to claim that good is infinitely malleable to its core. There does seem to be some sort of baseline ethos that is innate and fixed, but it's obviously not my belief that good is fixed in its entirety, because reason clearly shapes morality, at least to a certain degree. And to support that argument, I would rely heavily on this feature of intention, right? What you intend to do when you do it must have some weight on the moral scale. And if that's true, then at least a portion of good must be malleable. Again, science and religion are supposed to get married somewhere in here. I think it's a gay wedding, and I would love to be the officiant. And I totally didn't intend to spend this amount of time in this podcast focused on morality, Um, but here we are. And it's at this point that I have to at least briefly bring in psychedelics. I should have known we were going to end up here. In all of my personal experiences with psychedelics, and in a vast majority of the reports from other people, other users of psychedelics, there seems to be this evidence of... A strange union between the divinity of man, or a universal ethic, and our subjective or deeply personal truths. The messages that we often get from the psychedelic realm, or at the very least, the sensations that a psychedelic experience can introduce, are both universally profound and highly customized at the exact same time. An encounter with the psychedelic realm is indescribably spiritual, with implications of some sort of universal good and evil, something that exists outside of us and even outside of space and time, something that is, that always has been, something that is, for lack of better words, way bigger than we are. Yet at the same time, that very same experience can also be tailored to the user themselves. It can include a message with deeply personalized meaning, which may or may not be objectively or universally true. It could be irrelevant to other people, but to the individual, it could be utterly profound. So this latter example here, the customized experience that seems to be directed at and even even created for the individual, would be the best example of a malleable good that I can think of. Now, I do believe that universal goods and universal evils exist. There are at least some universal truths, which I believe are ultimately innate and non-disputable. But I'm also convinced that this is merely a layer in the structure that is morality. At another layer, at another level, it seems that we do have a certain amount of wiggle room in how we orient our own personal moral compasses. For evidence of this kind of moral complexity, I think psychedelics can offer us the clearest picture available, and that's really a shame because it's still a very, very blurry picture. But I'm trying, I'm trying, man. This is about as close as I've come to defining my own version of morality, and it is quite imperfect. But with all of that said, if you hear me swing in and out throughout this podcast between reason and religion, hopefully psychedelics can serve as the example of why I'm able to do that or why I have any comfort in doing that. Hopefully that makes sense. But, you know, maybe there's another way to say this concept, this hybridized view that good is 
fixed to in a certain degree and also malleable in another. You know, it would be something along the lines of like, like a, like an ocean where at the very bottom, you can't really do anything with that water. You can't move it around. It, it is fixed in place. Good luck changing the, the currents at the bottom of the ocean. But if we're on the top of the ocean where we have all of this water, we can move it around with our hands, right? We can drive boats through it. It's, it's very malleable on the top. We can control it and do things with it on the top end. But at its core, something about, about morality cannot truly be changed. So I know this is frustrating. I know it's really frustrating to assume that good or morality in of itself is partially fixed and partially not fixed. But, you know, if, you, if you're a, a believer and you believe that there is some sort of God, he's going to be complicated and nuanced in ways that are unimaginably hard to describe. And I think what I'm describing sort of falls in that category, right? Where morality is simultaneously fixed and unfixed. Frustrating, but that's where I'm at. So let's keep moving. And so I think one thing that can be really helpful here is to actually swap the word good out for the word truth. And not just any truth, because it is true that the walls of this studio are painted black. That's true. It also has nothing to do with this continuum. It doesn't help you orient yourself on this continuum of, of good and evil or things that promote your well-being or work against your well-being. A lot of truths, objective truths, are really neutral or otherwise totally irrelevant in this conversation. So if good and truth can be interchanged, what kind of truth am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about subjective and or personal truths. Now, I am very comfortable swapping these words personal truths and good. I think in many ways they are interchangeable. And one of the reasons that I have such a high level of comfort interchanging these two words is because adhering to your personal truths has a very high likelihood, or it seems to have a very high likelihood, of promoting your well-being. And that would be the reason or the scientific argument for defining what is good. It promotes your well-being. And I know of very few personal truths, subjective truths, that would point you in, in a bad direction, that would be counterproductive when it comes to fostering well-being in your own life. Personal truths seem to orient us towards relatively good things. Now let's lay out some personal truths because this does get very, very tricky. And really it's because truth in of itself is so variable when the truth is subjective. So I'll give you a personal example here, not drinking. For me, that's a personal truth. That is not a truth about alcohol, that would be an objective truth, I suppose, and that's that's really tough to pin down. For me, it is a personal truth that my life is better when I don't drink. We could take somebody else who may have a problem with pornography, which is a fairly common, um, common problem among men, a self-reported problem among men. It could very well be true that for one individual, looking at pornography is detrimental to their well-being. That is not a statement about pornography in of itself. I suppose it could be if you wanted to have that debate, but really it would be a personal truth for that person. And we can stack these up, but I do have uh, some specific examples where, where this hinges very, very heavily. So a first example I'll give you here is expression versus restraint. I know of some people who are loud people. 
When I say loud people, I suppose I do mean physically loud or audibly loud, but people who, who express themselves to a level that I'm not comfortable with. I think there are people who talk too much, people who are constantly focused on the output. They're constantly focused on, whether they know it or not, um, expressing themselves to the world. They are a loud force in the world. And for that person, you know, maybe you know somebody like this, a good piece of advice would be stop talking so much, listen more. It is not always about you projecting your opinion to the world, you know, maybe it's time that you talk less and listen a lot more. There are people who that advice would, would be extremely important to them, right? They need to hear that. You probably do know of somebody like that. Uh, it's too much output and not enough input. They need to exercise some restraint when it comes to how they interact with the world. That would be a personal truth of theirs. Then we could have someone who is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, someone who is far too compliant, far too reserved, someone who never digs their heels in, who never expresses their opinion at all. And that person, the opposite piece of advice should be given to them. You need to be loud. Let's hear what you have to say. Come out of your shell. So the definition of truth in this example could swing. It depends on who you're talking to. It is a personal truth. It is a subjective truth depending on the individual that's in front of you, you know, which piece of advice you would give. And so it's really tough to pin down what good might be in an example like this, because to say it is good to express yourself, well, that, that is true for some people, and for other people, that could not be good. You could say it is good to show some restraint in how you interact with the world. Well, that would be good advice for some people and not for others. But to each individual, this, this could hinge. It could totally change. So this is part of the reason why nailing down the definition of good is so tricky. Let me give you another example. Humor versus seriousness. You could certainly find someone who does not take their life seriously enough. There is no plan for the future. They are, <laughs> they're, in, uh, they're in artistry land, head in the clouds, not focused, no plan. And they have symptoms of that behavior in their life. There is no structure. Um, and life seems to be a little bit too chaotic, right? Measurably chaotic in a way. And if that was the case, a good piece of advice for that person, a personal truth, would be that you need to take this a little bit more seriously. We can all think of somebody who, uh, who we might want to give that piece of advice to. If we go to the other end of the spectrum, you could find someone who is far too serious, who's too structured. There, there's too much of a plan to the point where they're not enjoying the freedom that life is. They're not on the adventure. They're not having fun and they're not enjoying the ride. To that person, you would give the opposite piece of advice. What is good for them would be a little bit of artistry, a little bit of humor, right? A little bit of, uh, a little bit of exploration, a little bit of adventure. And so I could stack up many examples like this, but it's not my goal to just give you a thousand examples because these are variable and ultimately very personal, right? And I hope that as you're listening here, you might be able to come up with some personal truths of yours. What is it that's true for you that orients you in the direction of good as you see it that may not be true for someone else. I hope that you can think of some things where that applies. And if so, I think one of the conflicts here is that this does, this particular definition of good, does contrast against the religious argument because the religious argument would state that God in of himself, that entity, 
is good and it is unchanging. So it is a matter of you orienting yourself towards a fixed definition of good. And I believe that this type of religious approach to philosophy, it orients you towards a version of good, but not a personalized one, not a customized one. And that is where I take a little bit of issue here because I believe that uh, belief systems like Christianity, they seem to rob morality of the element of intention and that feature of intention, I think that has a lot to do with morality. So for example, you know, the Christian faith tells us that sex before marriage is wrong with no exception, with no wiggle room, having sex with someone that you are not married to would be painted as a sin. It is explicitly defined as a sin in the Bible. But I wonder if we were to add a lot of context to a sexual encounter, like you've been with someone for many years, you're both adults, you're both consenting, you love each other, you're monogamous, maybe you live together, If we were to stack all of these things up together, that must weigh on the moral scale. I think when we strip away this element of intention, it makes morality too dogmatic. It makes life less nuanced than it actually is. I think morality is incredibly nuanced. I think that you could have the exact same act, like the act of having sex with someone, it could be moral or immoral, depending on a long list of variables. There's a tremendous amount of context that you would wanna keep in mind when deciding if something is moral or immoral. And I think this is one of the failures of many dogmatic religions, is that they they state moral guidelines as though they are indefinitely fixed. And that would make sense if the definition of good, God in of himself, was fixed. If God, or this omnipresent, all-loving entity, creator of the universe, was a fixed good, then yes, good is not very malleable. I am pitching the argument today that, that your personal truths, your subjective truths, can help orient you in directions that might not directly align with a religious doctrine. Now, we'll probably revisit this a little bit later. It's not my intent to attack religion at this moment of the podcast. Um, but I, I do think it is an important distinction to make. Do you, do you believe that good is, is innately fixed and that we are aiming towards something that is unchanging and, and eternal and innate? Or do you believe that the definition of good could be altered based on your own personal or subjective truth? So if we're going to aim at good, we have to identify what it is. And I've laid out my position on how I think we can identify good, and that would be by laying out our personal truths, our subjective truths. So we can say that we're aiming at good, but ultimately we're aiming at adhering to our own personal truths, our own personal beliefs about ourselves, and that would be synonymous with good. So if we are aimed or oriented towards personal subjective truths, what's the gas in the tank that gets us there? How do we actually begin to progress towards that good or those subjective truths? Well, ultimately, I think if we want to change our behavior to start moving forward in life towards those subjective truths, it really comes down to personal responsibility or we could swap that out for individual duty. The way we move forward or progress towards what is good 
comes down to personal responsibility because ultimately we have to not only identify these subjective truths, but we have to amend our behavior to enact them. So that would come down to really only two things, speech and action. What we say and what we do are the only two mechanisms that we really have to interact with reality. There's no other way that you can interact with reality. You have your physical body and you have your voice. And both of those, you know, the precursor to both of those would be thought. So ultimately, we are amending our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. That could be defined simply as taking personal responsibility. So there are really two things that we would need to do here. We would need to identify are subjective truths, so we have something to aim at, and that would be synonymous with good, and then we also have to take personal responsibility to begin interacting with reality differently, and that happens by changing our thoughts, which subsequently would alter our speech and our actions, the two mechanisms that we use to interact with reality in itself. Now, on this continuum of good and evil, I tend to see this as like a highway, like a super highway with no speed limit, no rules. It's just a long straight line and evil would hopefully be behind you and good or your subjective truths would be in front of you on this road. Now, this is where I'm going to introduce a little bit of the Eastern philosophy and I want to bring into this graph that we're looking at now, the unalome. An unalome is really is a very non-offensive philosophical idea. And the idea would be that you start in chaos, uh, which admittedly we all do. You don't know how to orient yourself in the world. You don't have much of a moral compass, at least not one that you've consciously dialed in. And you are bouncing around. You're trying to figure shit out. And you could spend a long time doing that. Some people spend their entire lives and they, they, you know, they figure out very little about how the world works or how they want to behave in the world. But this idea would be that you begin life in somewhat of a chaotic state, and ultimately you begin to straighten out um, and stay on the road a little bit more. You might spend some time driving in the wrong direction for a little while. You might go way off in the shoulder. You might be six miles out in a fucking cornfield somewhere for a couple years until you find that road again, right? Now the road here, the road is is what is ideal. The road is optimal. Uh, you know, Eastern philosophy would say that the road is enlightenment or it is the best version of you that could potentially ever exist. So the road is some version of perfection and your goal would be to stay as close to that road as you can and ideally you'd be driving right down the center of it. Though admittedly that is very, very hard to do. Somebody that does that would be described as enlightened or like a perfect person, right? Now, we know which direction we should be heading on this road. We should be heading towards the good direction and away from the evil direction. And, of course, admittedly, even the Unilome here sort of states that we might not always be doing that. We don't always know where we are on this road or if we're anywhere near the road, but the road is, is the goal. We're supposed to be on this road. And the gas that fuels our vehicle is personal responsibility. As we take personal responsibility and amend our thoughts, speech, and actions, this is what helps us stomp on the gas to go towards whatever is good. We have to take personal responsibility, aiming at our own personal truths, and that's what moves us forward along this continuum. Now keep in mind, this continuum you know, this road that we're on is not time in of itself because, again, you could spend your entire life 
on one part of the road just bouncing around. You can just drive the other way the entire time. So it's not a continuum of time. It is life's journey, right? So this gets a little complicated here. The analogy gets a little bit tricky, but I want to sort of backtrack and lay this out for you. What we're aiming at on this highway that we're on is subjective personal truths. That's how we can define good, and that's how we know what we're actually aiming at. But I don't believe that the car that we're in moves down this highway until we take personal responsibility. Personal responsibility is synonymous with something like the gas pedal. When you interact with reality, you're choosing to change yourself. You're changing the world and how you interact with it. So that's amending your thoughts, your speech, and your actions. When you do that, there seems to be an acceleration that happens. That is how we not only orient ourselves towards good, because you can you can know where good is and have your personal truths, but not press the gas pedal to move towards them. Taking personal responsibility and ultimately amending your speech, your actions, and really your thoughts as well, that's how you press the gas. It is taking personal responsibility over those personal truths that moves you down this road. Now, this is where meaning begins to show up. As you are on this highway of good and evil, you've identified which direction on the road you're supposed to be going by identifying your personal truths and aiming towards them. And you move your vehicle forward by pressing on the gas through the means of personal responsibility. As you pick up speed, as you accelerate, as you take on more personal responsibility, and aim yourself towards your personal truths, which is synonymous with good, you pick up speed, and meaning seems to be something like a sunset. It seems to glow up over the horizon, and the sun never seems to be visible. It's not like you can hit the brakes on the car and look to your left or to your right and see the sun rising. You can't even identify where it's coming from. But you notice that while you were up to speed, while you were moving, there seemed to be light. There seemed to be a glow. And in my, in my eyes, this is the reason that I really don't care to ask the question of what is the meaning of life. Truly, I have never cared about that question less than I do now, but I also have a higher degree of personal responsibility than I ever have before. I care about myself, my actions, amending my thoughts and my speech and my actions. I care about amending those things more now than I ever have before. I'd like to think that I have a fairly high degree of personal responsibility, and I'm actively trying to, to do better in that category. Now, a lot of that, my ability to take this personal responsibility, comes because I have identified many of my personal truths. I've leaned heavily into my own individualistic nature and sort of conceded to the world that I am just an individual. What's right for someone else is probably not right for me. And my path towards what is good has become increasingly more customized. And as I take personal responsibility and begin to act upon those personal truths, those subjective truths, I do feel as though I have picked up speed 
on this continuum, on this road of personal development, right? I don't know if speed is the right word, but that's what it feels like sometimes, that I'm going faster, that life is flying by in a weird way. Because something about, about suffering, about being, being stagnant in misery, something about that is very slow. It's like you pulled over on the shoulder of the road and you just gave up on pressing the gas altogether. That you're on the side of the road of this highway and it's at night and you're looking way out into this fucking cornfield or wherever we're at on this road and you're looking for the sun. And the reality is, if you want that sun to come up, if you want meaning to appear, you almost have to stop looking for it. You have to get on this highway aimed towards your personal truths, fueled by your personal responsibility and stomp on the gas. And as you are heading towards what is good as you define it, the sun just seems to come up. Meaning seems to have this peculiar glow to it. And it's, again, you'll never actually see the sun. I don't think you can. I think that lends credit to the idea that, that asking Asking what is meaning is a stupid question because I don't think you're ever going to find the answer to that question. I think you get to feel the warmth of the answer, but you never get to look at it. I also think that whatever the meaning of life might be, it is so unutterably deep that you will never use words in your language to describe it. I think meaning is a lot bigger than that. I think it is far outside of our the capability of our spoken languages uh, to even describe. I don't think you can do that. I think you can feel the warmth, but you can never see the sun. And in that way, you know, meaning might be synonymous with like psychedelics and that is, it is a, it's an experiential sense that can't really be described. It's like if you saw a new color. Well, you have no words by which to describe what this color might be. You can't use other colors to describe it because then it wouldn't be a new color, right? It's something along those lines. And I do think that one of the problems when it comes to finding meaning is just this. It's that you cannot describe what meaning is. And while conversations like this one are really helpful in narrowing in on what the meaning might be, I think the answer ultimately is not something that can be described in any capacity. And so if you're someone who is struggling to find meaning, I would encourage you to perhaps not get so hung up on the question in of itself, because it is an unanswerable question. It really is. You're never going to find a definition that is satisfactory. You're never going to find a definition that can't be challenged or debated or totally rejected by the other half of the world. And I suppose it doesn't really matter. You know, it's your, it's your personal decision. If, if the meaning that you have is valid to you, then so be it. I don't feel like I have the authority to tell you that your meaning is invalid. It might be a fun conversation or fun debate to have, but I don't think I have the authority to tell you that your personal meaning uh, is invalidated by, by my own findings. But I will say that I believe we can all feel the warmth of meaning if we were to adhere to a structure like this, if we were to take a higher level of personal responsibility aimed at our personal truths, which are synonymous with good, I do think that you will find a deeper level of meaning. You will sense a deeper level of meaning, regardless of your ability to 
define that meaning or that feeling. And so no matter which side of the aisle you're coming from here, if you were to define good and evil from the naturalist perspective, like a Sam Harris type of view, you know, that, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't think it invalidates any of the things that I've laid out today. And if you were to come at this from, you know, a, a Christian apologist standpoint, I, I don't think any of these things are, are necessarily in conflict other than the idea that good is not synonymous with a uh, with an omnipresent creator of the universe, but rather it's synonymous with what is good for you, and that would be very malleable, right? Um, but with that said, there's verses in the Bible that would that would open this up. Of course there are, right? Um, like, you know, to discover your own salvation, to find your own salvation, which would leave a little bit of dogmatic wiggle room for amending your own version of Christianity. I don't think that's a bad way to live. I don't necessarily think that you are heading towards evil if you're doing that. But I will say that I believe there is much to be gained out of identifying your own personal truths and aiming towards them, to loosen your definition of good, or rather to customize your definition of good over time. Instead of assuming that one religious belief, one one doctrine is the definition of good and you're merely aiming towards that same thing. I don't think we're all aiming at the same thing here. I think good is uniquely malleable, and for that reason, subjective truth is uh, is an appropriate substitute. All right, I know this was a little bit quicker of one, but this is a really, really deep topic, and I feel like if I stray off the path too far here, we're gonna get sucked down another wormhole and uh, and spend an hour or two there. So I think I'm gonna leave it at this for now. You know, and I also wanna clarify that this is not you know, as is the nature of every philosophical conversation, this is not a conclusion. It can't possibly be a conclusion. This is a theory. This is an idea. This is a a theoretical formula might be a good way to describe how I look at this idea of hunting for meaning in our life. So it's not my intention to tell you that I have solved this problem. I will never solve this problem. And of course, I would I would argue that you won't either. Now, you may think you have solved the problem, and if, if that's the case, I am genuinely happy for you. I'm happy that you don't have to bear the burden of a question like this, because for many people, this is a heavy burden to walk around with. But again, one of the things that that initiated my desire to do this podcast was the fact that I, I don't really feel that burden right now. And again, I think that's tied into a higher level of personal responsibility. And for me, this was a a profound philosophical discovery that I made, um, and I wanted to share it with you today. So I hope that this was not too abstract, too far out there. I hope that there was something you could gain from this. And and you know, selfishly, I might I might add that this this is the kind of podcast you might want to listen to twice. Um, or, you know, maybe not. Maybe these are topics that you guys are actually familiar with. But we went relatively far down some philosophical wormholes today. And so I hope that you enjoyed uh, enjoyed some of these thoughts that I've had about this. And I would love to know your opinion. So uh, you may have heard recently, too, that YouTube specifically has altered their algorithms where commenting is now one of the best things that you can do uh, to help promote a video in the algorithm. So if you're on YouTube, or even if you're not, Man, I would really appreciate if you dropped a comment. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know your favorite uh, point of this podcast or shit. Tell me if you think I'm a total idiot and all of this is absolutely wrong. You will not hurt my feelings. I promise. And of course, one other thing you can do to help this podcast out is to share it with a friend. Now, it would be cool if you shared it publicly on social media, but I understand that... (laughs) that this might not be something you want to put your name on necessarily, at least to the general uh, public of the internet. So, um, you know, I always want to remind people, 
sharing a podcast like this doesn't have to be like literally the function of sharing in social media. You can cut and paste this link and text it to a friend who might find this interesting or need to hear it. I think that's a fantastic way um, to, to share information online. That's how I share most podcasts with my friends is I just message them and I say, hey, this thing, this topic, this conversation made me think of you. I think that's a powerful way to share information with people, and I do that all the time. So uh, that, that's an awesome way to support this podcast if you feel so inclined to do so. Thank you guys so much for listening or watching this episode of All In With Adam. And again, make sure to check the podcast description uh, or just the, the description of, of wherever you're consuming this um, to get this, um, this little system here, this little sketch that I made on my iPad. I think it'll be really helpful. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Love you, and I'll see you next week. Bye.